Thomas Jefferson said, if I had to choose between government without newspapers and newspapers without government, I would not hesitate to choose the latter. The press is the only industry that is mentioned in the U.S. Constitution. So the importance of a free press has been really a foundation to our country and our democracy. I think a lot of my good friends at Kellogg thought I was crazy when I would just kind of cold call a CEO and ask if we could grab coffee. I put an envelope and I went to the front desk of the Charles Hotel and said, I have a letter for David Ploff and David Axelrod. Would you deliver it to their room? And they said, sure. So that was kind of confirmation that they were in fact staying there. What does caring about the health of our press and democracy, co-calling CEOs for coffee chats, and delivering personal letters to President Obama's advisors without knowing exactly which hotel they're staying have anything to do with entrepreneurship and family enterprise? Hi, my name is Esther Choi, the executive producer and your host of the John L. Ward Center for Family Enterprises' own podcast series, Family in Business, a podcast that features stories of leaders, their families, and the family enterprises they transformed. In episode two of the season, we've heard the story of a third-generation family business leader, Ian Rosen, and how he forged a unique path for himself by launching a new venture for his family enterprise that was just what it needed and just at the nick of time. But what if there's no clear and accessible path for you to come into your family business? What are you supposed to do? That's what we're going to explore in this episode with another third-generation family business leader who has a remarkable way of connecting the seemingly unconnected while pursuing his personal passion. We will also introduce you to a model called family in entrepreneurship that will help you think through how to systematically nurture entrepreneurship in the family business context. Our guest is Zach Richner. Who's Zach? My name is Zachary Richner, and I am the founder and managing partner of Arendale Ventures. Obviously, I come from a family business, so I'm a director at Richner Communications, started by my grandparents in 1964. That is one of the largest local media groups in the Northeast. Both my grandmother and grandfather started the business back in 1964. I think it's really cool that my grandmother was involved in that era. Not often you hear about a woman leading a business. In the late 80s, my father and his older brother joined the business and have run the business since 1987. Uh, my uncle Cliff retired probably about three years ago at this point. He was really focused more on the editorial side of the business and my father mostly focused on the business side of the business. I was really involved since a very young age, so I took an interest in it and did everything from sweeping the factory floor to writing articles to going out and as a member of the sales team, but always in a bit of an informal sense. So usually not on the payroll, just more of, hey, we need you to pitch in here or I had an interest in something and I had the 
great fortune of being able to work on that interest. My father and my uncle have done and continue to do a fantastic job with the company in an industry that is facing a lot of headwinds, both financial and often political headwinds, being local news and a native newspaper company. So to have the success that they've had requires, I would say, some pretty brilliant strategy and also a lot of hard work. My father is an incredibly hard worker, incredibly dedicated. And at the time when he and I were discussing succession, it was clear that he was going to continue to work to the same extent for the foreseeable future. And that, of course, is a double-edged sword. On one hand, it's fantastic to have someone with the intellect and experience that he has. But on the other hand, there was definitely some concern about my coming in and being able to implement a strategy of my own when he has such a strong personality and also is very respected for what he has been able to do. So I made ultimately made the decision that I wanted to be involved in the industry and be able to leverage the relationships and knowledge I had within the industry, but do something on my own, which is where Arendelle Ventures started. Arendelle Ventures is a venture startup that provides advertising services to venture-backed startups in exchange for equity, but is not a VC fund. Hmm, what does that mean? And how does Zach came up with this idea? How does someone who spent so much time in politics and cares so much about the health of our press founded such a unique company? And most importantly, what does his story tell us about entrepreneurship and family in business? First and foremost, Zach has been really, really good at finding his personal niche, and he's incredibly good at leveraging his family business asset. As you listen to the rest of his story, see how many different types of assets you can identify that he's leveraged. A big hint, asset is not just financial or reputational. I saw that the largest problem facing local news was really around the business model. The content or the product we were selling, which is local news, was actually more popular than ever before. But a lot of these especially local news organizations were struggling to make a profit and going out of business at a really scary rate. So I felt that if you had a great product, but were struggling to make money, perhaps we should really be focused on the business model. And that's what Aaron Dale Ventures was really all about, was how do we find totally out-of-the-box business model for a very traditional industry. I wanted to look at what we as a newspaper industry do well and really focused on four main things or concluded it was four main things. The first was we provide really compelling content. The second is uh, we have really unique marketing channels. The third is we have longstanding relationships with both consumers and small businesses. And then the fourth is we have a really well-known and trusted brand in our communities. Once I had those four 
core tenants, just blue sky, what could we do that would leverage these four areas? And I was very fortunate to have taken some startup courses at Kellogg and knew some friends and family that worked either at venture funds or startups. And I kept hearing the same thing that was a ton of a startup's budget was being spent on marketing and they were spending it almost exclusively with Facebook and Google. And the common complaint was that the ROI with those big tech platforms was diminishing very quickly. Uh, So I had this audacious idea that traditional media could and should be part of a startup's marketing plan, especially when you look at the size of the market. Last year, over $130 billion was spent by venture-backed startups on marketing with Facebook and Google, and traditional media really saw none of that. So there was a, a tremendous opportunity to capture some of that marketing dollars, even if it was a a small percentage, it was still a material amount of money to the industry. So when I approached some startups about advertising and marketing through traditional media channels, they said, oh, that sounds great. Why don't you become an investor uh, with us and uh, write us a seven or $8 million check, and then we can talk about it. And that just wasn't in the cards for a number of reasons. One is we as a family business. Uh, you know, at this time it was still like Arendale Ventures was just kind of a, a thought. So I was doing a lot of the work within the family organization, knowing that I would eventually spin out into my own company. We didn't have the structure to invest in startups. We didn't have the liquidity to make portfolio size investment uh, or develop a full portfolio of startups. And also the risk profile is completely opposite that of a, a journalism organization. One is you check and verify and then check and verify again. And the other is taking very calculated risks that you know are likely going to be wrong pretty often, despite your best intentions. So making that investment wasn't in the cards, but came up with this idea that, well, what if we, instead of making a cash investment, we provided in-kind marketing services and inventory, and we would be able to do that at pretty substantial discounts for the startups. So we ended up moving down that path and it worked out really well, both for us as a newspaper organization, but also for the startups. So it was at that point that I said, if we could move the needle with a relatively small footprint in the New York metro area, what could we do with a more national footprint? So that was when Arendelle Ventures really got off the ground. What a novel idea. First, Zach zeroed in on the four things that traditional local media companies do well, but their business models are not working. He also noticed that over $130 billion of startup and venture investment capital had been spent on the big three, Google, Amazon, and Facebook, but those aren't always the most effective advertising avenues. But since he didn't have the capital required to make cash investment, he instead provided in-kind advertising and marketing services in exchange for equities in these venture-backed startups. And that was middle of 2019, I would say, when we started 
approaching other news organizations and local media groups in my network about this in-kind marketing model where we would invest their marketing for equity in high growth, hopefully high value startups, and then in return, provide some of that equity back to the media groups. So that was mid, late 2019. At the time, we thought we were going to actually raise a cash fund as well. Um, so we would you know, have a traditional cash fund, uh, venture capital fund, and then also do this in-kind marketing investment. But the pandemic happened right as we be, were starting to raise money. And when we notified a lot of the entrepreneurs or you know, the founders of startups that we had been talking to about this new fund we had planned to launch and said to them, hey, we know that we had messaged uh, that we would probably start making our first investments sometime in mid-2020, given the state of the market, we're not sure when that first investment will be now. It might be end of 2020 or even 2021. Little did we know how big an impact uh, the pandemic would have on all of us. And what we kept hearing from these founders was, well, we actually don't care about the cash. We care about the marketing that you're able to give us. So is there a model where you can start quicker and give us the marketing, which was really interesting to us. And also the economics were better for us if we were able to just have this in-kind marketing piece of it and not have limited partners that were providing a cash fund. So we ended up pursuing a fund where it was just in-kind marketing that we invest in, spent most of the pandemic building out this network of media partners. Today, we have over 4,000 local media outlets that we work with. It is print, digital, radio, television, out of home, which is billboards, basically. And we estimate that we have way over a billion dollars of marketing to put to work over the next few years. And we continue to grow that network and grow the amount of marketing that we can make available to startups. With some trial and errors, that's how Arendelle Ventures got off the ground. How many different types of assets did you hear Zach leveraged from his family business? Two, three, four? Let's take account. Financial, reputational, yes, but also knowledge, credibility, relational, and experience. Have I missed any other type? By the way, Leveraging assets is one of the three core elements in our family in entrepreneurship model. It is critically important. As our guest in the first episode, Kartik Wahi, would advise us, don't leave behind all those assets that took a lifetime to build. The other two elements are discover your niche and well-timed. We'll talk about these later. But first, we need to have a shared definition. And that is entrepreneurship. What is entrepreneurship? And since we're exploring entrepreneurship in the family business context, are there any differences? Entrepreneurship really is a mindset. It's a way of solving or addressing problems. My name is Matt Allen. I am currently an associate professor at Babson College. And this year, I am a visiting faculty member with the John Ward Center as part of the Kellogg School. Matt is also the co-editor of a fabulously helpful book called Family Entrepreneurship, 
insights from leading experts on successful multi-generational entrepreneurial families. One of the things that we did with the book was to talk about family entrepreneurship instead of entrepreneurship in the family business. And I see those as, as potentially different things, although there's some overlap. When you talk about family entrepreneurship, what you're doing is recognizing that even in a family business, the primary driver of entrepreneurial activity, decision-making, mindset, thinking is driven by the family, not by the business. So often in research, you'll hear things like innovation in the family business or entrepreneurship in the family business. And how do we take the family business and integrate more entrepreneurial thinking? In reality, it's the family that needs to be the focus. Any entrepreneurial activity, any entrepreneurial thinking is going to come through that family. The other reason that that I say family entrepreneurship versus family business entrepreneurship is that the entrepreneurship you see coming from a family doesn't always directly impact the business. When I have my students introduce themselves, I'll usually say, tell me a little bit about yourself. Tell me about your family business. The majority of my students will respond by saying, which family business do you want me to talk about? Because most families are involved in multiple ventures, not just one and not just the core family business. They're trying lots of different things. And so by making the family the center, you're able to capture everything the family does. Other things you might miss are family philanthropy, a family foundation, or other things that the family is doing. Very often, families are involved in politics, they're involved in the community, they're involved in educational endeavors. All of those can involve entrepreneurship. And if you're only focused on the business, you miss all of them. Indeed, Zach and his family do what it takes to support local news organization, including supporting legislation to help revive local press. I care about this industry not only because of my family connection to it, but also because of my interest in civic engagement and community, which I think might have been obvious from some of my political and government background, But there is now just so much data that show the importance of local news organizations to a community. And that data show that when a local community loses their source of local news, they see higher rates of political polarization, higher instances of corruption and fraud, lower voter turnout. So there's a real mission piece to this because so many news organizations are struggling right now, local news organizations in particular. And I think that's important to separate is local news versus national news, where a lot of people consider national news to be very partisan and biased. People trust their local news organization, in most cases, a newspaper. It's not even close the level of trust of a newspaper compared to any other media channel. So we need to do whatever we can to keep them in business, where right now we're losing the latest numbers are two newspapers every week are closing in this country. It's like 25% of all newspapers have shut down in the last decade or so. Half of the newsroom jobs are gone. So it's a real crisis of democracy. And I want to be part of the solution to that to the best extent possible. I believe that government can be part of the solution as well. And during the pandemic, our 
family business proposed to the New York State Legislature this idea that local businesses, small businesses could receive a tax break for advertising in local media outlets. Unfortunately, by the time the Richner family took the idea to the New York State Legislature in 2020, it was too late to get into its budget. But that wasn't enough to discourage their progress. Instead, they took this idea nationwide. Working alongside his industry colleagues, Zach created something even bigger. It is called... The Local Journalism Sustainability Act. And the LJSA had three parts. One was a tax credit for small businesses for advertising with their local media outlets. Two was a tax credit to consumers for subscribing to a local news organization. And then the third was a tax credit to local news organizations for employing journalists. So those were the three pieces of the LJSA. It has tremendous bipartisan support in the House. Yeah, so you have people like Representative Jayapal on the left, Representative Lee Zeldin on the right, because local news is not a partisan issue. Conservative and liberal politicians understand the value of local news to their community and how important it is to have these strong communities. We have a lot of great support from Senate leadership. Local Journalism Sustainability Act is just one of two legislations that Zach has spearheaded. Like what Matt Allen alluded to earlier, it's a good idea to put the family back in focus, be it family in business or family in entrepreneurship, because when we put family in focus, we see a clearer and more complete picture. So, what about Arendelle Ventures? How is it working out so far? So, the biggest marker of success is a financial return. So, at the end of the day, what's our IRR or our multiple on invested capital, which is a bit tricky to figure out in part because we're not investing cash, we're investing this in-kind marketing. So when we look at our multiples, we really look at what is the cost of sale for our media partners. I can't get too much into the, the details, but I will say that we are very, very happy with the metrics or how we are meeting or exceeding our KPIs. One of our companies had an exit very early on, much earlier on than any of our projections predicted. So within about six months or so, Mini Bar Delivery, which was an alcohol delivery company, was acquired by another alcohol company called Reserve Bar. And because of that acquisition, there was, of course, a liquidity event, and we were able to write six-figure checks to some of our smaller media partners. So that's a material infusion of cash for anybody, especially a small media partner. That was a great proof point early on that we could do this at scale. And since then, the momentum or the interest from publishers and media partners has certainly picked up. So what my focus on or kind of the next stage of our growth at Arendelle is to bring on board larger, more national media partners. We started with local media for a number of reasons. One is that's who my network was. So it was easiest to go after some, for lack of a better word, low-hanging fruit. 
Here's a folly that happens to anyone, and I do mean any one of us all. When we recount events in our life, it's easy to underrepresent the severity of the challenges and roadblocks that we once faced, and it's very difficult to fully represent what it took to overcome those roadblocks. When we listen to Zach's recounting how he came to be the founder and managing director of Arendelle Ventures, we heard what he observed, brainstormed, tested, and connected. That all seemed and felt straightforward, but not if we take into the account of a major roadblock. And that is, how exactly did he discover where his niche was? With no clear and viable succession path for him in his family business, where could he go? He had to find his own niche while leveraging various types of assets from his family enterprise. Discovering one's niche is easier said than done, and is also the second element in our family in entrepreneurship model. Let's hear how Zach discovered his. When I was in college. There was this guy Barack Obama that was running for president. I thought he was just really cool guy with a lot of good ideas, and I wanted to be involved. So I went to Harvard, and every year or every four years after an election, Harvard at the Institute of Politics would convene the campaign manager and the top senior advisor from each side, the winners and the losers. A conversation.、Uh, I think it might have been an off-the-record conversation, and I saw that as an opportunity to get in touch with David Axelrod and David Pluff. David Pluff being the campaign manager, Axelrod his senior advisor, and I just knew that they had to be staying at the Charles Hotel. There was only like one nice hotel in Cambridge, so I wrote a cover letter to each of them. And a resume. I put an envelope and I went to the front desk of the Charles Hotel and said, "I have a letter for David Plouffe and David Axelrod. Would you deliver it to their room?" And they said, "Sure." So that was kind of confirmation that they were in fact staying there. Got a call a few weeks later asking if I was interested in an internship、uh, in the chief of staff's office when Rahm Emanuel was there. What was initially a three-month internship turned into a full-time. Job in the chief of staff's office, working pretty extensively with then Vice President Biden. A lot of my focus was on the the Recovery Act. I took time off from school to do that. All of my bosses at the White House told me I had to go back to school at some point, so went back to school. I got my degree in government, and I was asked by the Obama team if I would move out to Ohio to be the budget director in Ohio because it was. In 2012, had the most money coming into it, and they needed somebody with a finance background to manage it. At the time, it was the largest state budget in presidential campaign history,、uh, and might actually still be to this day. But I did that. The White House was the best job I ever had. The campaign was also great, but it's like something you don't really want to repeat again. I think it's kind of like pledging a frat, but. At the end, if you recall, at the end of the 2012 election cycle, Hurricane Sandy ripped through the Northeast, including the very communities that I grew up in, that my family had newspapers in. And I was asked by the White House if I would spend a、uh, 
quote unquote, quick six months helping to coordinate the billions of dollars of federal aid that was coming into the region. So did that for six months. My boss was a gentleman named Jamie Rubin and had some other tremendous colleagues like Betsy Mallow. And at the end of the six months, Governor Cuomo asked Jamie if he would come over to New York State and run New York State's storm recovery efforts. Jamie brought two or three people with him to do that from the White House task force, Betsy being one as his deputy, and then I came over to run the Community Reconstruction Program for Long Island, which is the infrastructure rebuild of Long Island. So there was a housing division, an infrastructure division, and a business, a small business division. And I oversaw the infrastructure piece. It was a tremendous experience, all of those public sector experiences for a number of reasons. One is, if you're a competent person in government, you get a lot of responsibility really young. So like at 25 years old, I was working for Governor Cuomo, running a billion dollar program with a hundred people that worked on the team. What was also really great about that experience, besides the fact that I was really drinking from a fire hose, both on executing a, a program, but also all the all of the learnings that come with managing people, especially those that sometimes have competing priorities. But all of these government experiences were in startup environments. So at the White House, it was a brand new administration. At the 2012 re-election campaign, we scaled that in a, the span of a couple of months to over 130 offices and 800 people, like quicker than any Silicon Valley startup. Then you have the Hurricane Sandy task force. Obviously, that didn't exist before Hurricane Sandy. And same with the governor's office of storm recovery with New York. That was a brand new office that was only created after Sandy. And uh, it was a privilege to be one of the first people that worked there. So I was very fortunate to find these government opportunities that operated much more like a startup than a traditional agency. So from finding his internship in the White House very unconventionally to scaling a presidential election campaign to over 130 offices to running a billion-dollar program with 100 people working in it, that's how Zach discovered his niche in founding Arendelle Ventures? Families tend to find opportunities that fit their values, their goals, their dreams, their interests, their approach. And sometimes those niches are based on, you know, timing or knowledge or other things. That's Matt Allen again, visiting at the Ward Center and a professor of entrepreneurship from Babson College. I didn't know this until a few years ago, but there are many private higher education institutions across the globe that are family-owned and family-run. As I heard that, I thought, well, that also makes sense because families are all about education and the future of the next generation. And so it would make sense that they might align themselves or find business opportunities related to education because there's a value match there. So we have matches related to timing. We have matches related to values. And sometimes we have matches related to the very communities where the families live. 
So families that grow up in a certain community are going to recognize the problems of that community. And as they build their business, the business is built trying to solve the problems within that community. I had a, a founder in my classroom a couple of years ago, and he was talking about this business that he founded, which was a restaurant business that ended up growing to, to 60 or 70 different restaurants. But in the beginning, it started because he moved back to be close to family. And while he was working in the family business, there was nowhere to go for lunch. And so he eventually said, I can't stand this anymore. I'm going to start a restaurant because there's nowhere to eat around here. He actually left the core family business and that restaurant became his family business that he's now working with the next generation on. But that was the family seeing a need in the community and reaching out and solving that, that need. In Zach's story, we can infer that discovering one's niche is not necessarily a planned process. There's a certain serendipity involved. For example, he never thought that he would be in Hurricane Sandy's storm recovery for three years. But discovering his niche also means that he's paying very close attention to his family business, his ecosystem, and pounds on opportunities that align with his interests, values, goals, and dream. Now, discovering his niche is one thing, but there's also a lot of headwinds in the media industry, especially at the local news media level. Zach's heart is in the right place, he has the right experience and tenacity, and he has a great early success with one of his portfolio companies. But... Will this guarantee long-term success? I have to ask for a third opinion. I'm Jeremy Gilbert. I'm a professor at Northwestern University and the Knight Chair in Digital Media Strategy at Medill. I think of myself as a journalist, but also a digital strategist and designer. Like Carter Cass, who's our guest expert in Episode 2, Jeremy has a long and impressive resume. But I've invited him to offer his expert commentary for this episode because of one specific job that he held prior to coming back to Northwestern. I served as the director of strategic initiatives for The Washington Post. And what I really loved about the role is strategy is the thing that ties together all the parts of a media company. Within the newsroom, I really tried to focus on both how is technology enabling a legacy organization like The Post to evolve, to change and grow, and then also how do the decisions that we were making in the newsroom impact the financial side of running a media company? One of the reasons that news in local markets is really in challenge is because the business models are different. And so if you ran a business, especially a family-owned local news business, as many are or were, what worked even 10 years ago probably doesn't work now. And so part of the challenge is how many owners and especially how many families are able to say, we are going to radically change how we do what we do to meet the present challenges. So some people are very capable of doing that. Many people have really struggled. What I love and admire about Arendelle Ventures is that I think it is so clever to really know what are your strengths, the distribution network, the time and attention, the credibility with local news partners that they brought, and then marry that to a very innovative novel and different business model. 
I think for a lot of entrepreneurs who, who would come to a local newsroom and say, I want you to do something totally different than you have done before. Get involved in venture backing of startups, get involved in helping to market those startups. If you lack the credibility and the legacy in local media, in journalism, it would be an almost impossible task. And so what Arendelle does so well is it blends this really cutting edge way to back startups and make money at a local level with such credibility in terms of legacy media. And I think that that's what makes it really unique. And I really admire in particular Zach's ability to look back and say, what do we do well? What do we need? And what does the market need? And he blended those three in this company, not just by himself, but he blended those three so seamlessly that that's what I think makes Arendelle both so exciting and so successful. Where I feel really heartened about local news is that there are a handful of family-owned businesses that are being incredibly smart and trying new things in the local space. There are a lot of entrepreneurs who are starting without debt and they're being very creative. So I think there is hope. I really think Arendelle has a great chance of making it because they are so thoughtful and creative about both what the need is and how they fill it. I am bullish on the idea that we will have healthy news ecosystems, especially at the local level. I think a lot of it is credit to having great parents that encouraged my ambitious goals and not taking no for an answer. Like, I think when people say, oh, it's always been done that way, that means that it probably should be done some other way. It probably should be done some other way. That also just about sum up the spirit of entrepreneurship, too. In the next episode, our guest has an entrepreneurial experience that is most often shared but seldom spoken. We couldn't have prayed or dreamed for someone who appeared on our doorstep to share this kind of story if we tried. But we got one. And that's in the next episode. And we will also share a very commonplace and yet very complex concept, time, which is the third and last element in our family in entrepreneurship model. You don't want to miss out on that. Thank you for tuning in to Family in Business, a podcast sponsored by the John L. Ward Center for Family Enterprises. Thank you, Zach Richner, founder and managing director of Arendelle Ventures. Our show is supported and advised by Dr. Jennifer Pendergast, executive director of Kellogg's Ward Center for Family Enterprises. Kane Power is our podcast engineer. And I am Esther Choi, Kellogg class of 2009. CEO and Chief Story Facilitator of Leadership Story Lab and the author of the book, Let the Story Do the Work.